4.14-30. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are, in, uh, who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and were wondering at the gracious words which, which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we contemplate what these words mean, that we will see the way that Jesus ministered and what he said, and we'll see, Lord, by his example, the kind of response he received. Lord, we know that whatever Jesus did in this regard in preaching the truth is, is also supposed to be true of us. So may we learn lessons from the way that Jesus preached, what he said, but also the reaction he received, and know that our reactions will be the same way, that people will indeed treat us the way that they treated Christ. May we not be discouraged by this, but learn from it, to take warning from it, and to be prepared whenever that happens. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in this section of Luke, Luke 4, 14 to 30, it may be summarized as Jesus' initial response or reaction to his public ministry when he did many good things, when he did many good things, and yet the people still did not believe. Not only did they not believe, but they wanted to kill him. They wanted nothing to do with him, even though he had done many good things. We'll see in this passage that he does not, initially, in the, these first two paragraphs, he does not say anything to them that would arouse their animosity. He doesn't say anything to them that would make them upset and angry. It's not until they question his identity, is this not Joseph's son, that Jesus says something to them, and then they want to get rid of him. They want to do away with him from the earth. We'll see from this that this is typical not only of Jesus, but typical of the prophets and, and the apostles, but also us. We who are faithful to Christ, no matter how nicely we say it, no matter what good things we say, no matter how eloqu eloquently we say it, how forthrightly and clearly, authoritatively we say it, we say what the Bible says, people still will hate it. They will not see it. They will not believe it. And it will only take a miracle of God, the Word of God by the Spirit of God, to, in order to produce a child of God. It will not take our genius. It will not take our eloquence or anything like that. It takes God's miraculous intervention in the hard and corrupt human heart. That's the lesson we have today. Let's see what happens. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, 
Now here in 4.14, it says that he returned to Galilee. He was raised in Galilee, specifically in the city Nazareth. He was raised there, but Galilee was the place where he returned after his baptism and temptation because that's where Isaiah the prophet said that Christ, the Messiah, would first preach the gospel. In Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, Isaiah had already proclaimed and predicted 700 years before this event that Christ would go into Galilee in a dark place, a place where there was very little faith, and even a place where many Gentiles lived, even though it was a Jewish country where many Gentiles lived, and Jesus would preach the gospel there. He would do so, and this is why he returns to Galilee, to go not because he was homesick, not because he just wanted to be in familiar territory in his home area, not because of that, but because he wanted to fulfill prophecy, and it says he did it in the power of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. He didn't go because of human uh, will or, or, or human needs or something like that. He went because God directed him to go there, and he went in the power of the Holy Spirit. This expression, in the power of the Spirit, is similar to what Micah the prophet said about his own ministry. In Micah 3, verse 8, he says, On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage, to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. This is the means by which Jesus went, with the Spirit of the Lord, and its purpose was to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin, in order to declare the sin of the people. And he does so. He will do so at times. Now, notice in verse 14, when he went, we know that wherever he went, he preached the gospel and he also performed miracles. He preached the gospel, which is repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and he performed miraculous deeds, things that people had never seen before. This is by the power, this endowment of the Holy Spirit. And because he did this, news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Everybody was talking about it. Blind people were seeing, dumb people were hearing and being able to speak, deaf and dumb were able to hear and speak. People who were lame were able to walk. Even dead people were rising from the dead. This is because of the power of Christ. So normally and naturally, anybody who sees that, he's going to tell his friends and neighbors about it, and the word's going to spread, especially as Jesus went from town to town, village to village, synagogue to synagogue throughout the whole region of Galilee. So everybody comes to hear about it. And verse 15, And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. He went from place to place, but he also went to the place of worship on the Sabbath day, especially, but also other days of the week. He would go to the synagogue and teach there where teaching was heard, where those who were in authority, usually the priests and the Levites, but also some of the common people, the common men, could speak up, read a scripture and speak up. And Jesus was not a Levite, of course. He was not a priest from the uh, tribe or the family of Aaron. He was not that. So he was still able to because he was uh, a Jew and a man and he had something to say and they could do so and this is what he does. But when he does so, he's praised by all. Everybody likes him. Everybody enjoys it. Notice that. He's praised by all. And also, we'll see this in verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and were wondering at his gracious words, which were falling from his lips. They're listening to him. They're amazed at him. And I also believe that they are amused at him. They are amazed and amused. They are amazed in this sense. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Matthew seven twenty-eight. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. One who has authority says, thus says the Lord. This is what the Bible says. This is what it says. You know what it says. It was just explained to you. Therefore, do what it says. 
no nonsense, black and white, this is what you should do, this is what God expects of you. That's authoritative teaching of the Bible. Thus says the Lord, it is written, the scripture says, the prophet says, the holy prophet says, this is the way the scriptures should be preached. And that's the way Jesus preached the scriptures. But the scribes, what would they do? They said, well, you know, uh, I've always wondered about that question. That's a good question. And there's several opinions of, of that question. And I'll, let me just explain all the opinions, and then you can just decide. You know, there's seven or eight opinions on this one question you've asked. So you can just listen to me, and then you can figure it out yourself. You know, there are seven or eight authoritative rabbis who know a lot of stuff, and they have a difference of opinion on this, so we can't be dogmatic, you know. We can't be dogmatic. If you're dogmatic, then you're proud. You're arrogant. You can't have any dogmatism in this. So you have to leave room. There's room for a difference of opinion. And this, this is what they would do. They would do this on everything. They would do this on everything. So the people are bewildered. They're confused. What am I supposed to believe? What does God expect of me? Has God spoken in the Bible? Can we understand the Bible? Is the Bible confusing or is it clear? Is it clear enough on the main points for me to know how to love God, know God, believe in the gospel? Is it clear or not? Well, they would say, no. But Jesus said, yes. John the Baptist led the way of that. And then Jesus says, yes, it is clear. And this is why they were amazed, because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. But I also think that there's another reason why that he was praised by all and they, people were speaking well of him. The other reason is found in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33.30. Ezekiel 33.30. But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. And they come to you, as people come, and they sit before you as my people, but they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. What's the problem with these people? Is They treat Ezekiel as though he is a sensual song, has a beautiful voice, plays well on an instrument. They hear the words, but they do not practice them. They don't want to obey. They hear it. It sounds nice. Well, he has a smooth and, and wonderful delivery. He's winsome. He's charming. He's handsome. Look at the, what, the, his diction. Look at all of his vocabulary words. He knows big words. He knows theological words. Wow, he studied Hebrew and Greek. He's got a PhD. They'll say these. Oh, he knows the Bible. That's another one they'll say. He knows the Bible very well. Wow, that's amazing. I never met somebody like this. So they'll listen for a short time, but then they won't ever do it. They won't ever practice. And then they will spite and slander the person who was teaching them the Bible. Notice this is what happened to John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 20. Mark 6, 20. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod, who beheaded John the Baptist, it says he used to enjoy listening to him. He listened because look at this amazing man. He's saying, uh, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? He's talking like this and just calling the shots as they are. I've never heard anybody like that. He, you know, he's used to being around politicians. He's a king. So they don't talk straight. But he is talking straight, and he's telling me exactly. I, I, I enjoy listening to him. But he never obeyed John the Baptist. And in fact, he was John the Baptist's executioner. Another example is, Jesus even acknowledges this fact about John, is in 
John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus says similar words, not about Herod specifically, but about people generally. In John 5, 35, Jesus describes John the Baptist. 535, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You are willing to rejoice in a while in his light. He who endures until the end shall be saved, Matthew 24, 13. They didn't do that. They, they were amused and tickled for a short time, and they were amazed in, in terms of what John was, the kind of person he was, righteous and holy, and, and the way he preached. But they really didn't agree with John. They really disdained him and despised him. And this is what they're doing to Jesus in Luke 4. He's, they're pra he, he's praised by all because of these reasons. Something has not happened yet. We'll see, and we'll talk about that. Now look at verse 16, Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth, which is the, a city in Galilee, and that's where he was brought up, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. He comes to Nazareth because also it says in the prophets, according to Matthew 2.23, he shall be called a Nazarene. He'll be called a Nazarene because he'll be from the city or town of Nazareth. The prophets predicted this, and this is where he was brought up. We have mentioned this before in a previous study, that Jesus was brought up here and he spent his whole life there in the land of Israel, in that region. He did not traverse uh, farther than that. He did not go across the world. He did not go into Jammu and Kashmir. He did not go into India. He never became a Muslim. He never became a Hindu. He never taught anything like that. The, those religions say that Jesus did those things. They're speaking falsehoods. They are contradicting the Bible. Jesus had nothing to do with Islam. He had nothing to do with Hinduism. In fact, his teachings contradict the very fundamental tenets of Islam, Hinduism, and all other false religions. So don't buy the line that Jesus is just another one of, of the enlightened teachers, just like enlightened teachers and prophets of other religions. That's not true. He was brought up here. All, all his life in Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem, but brought up in Nazareth, and then preached in Galilee and Judea. Now, it says, it was his custom to enter the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was his custom because his parents, being godly, would have taken him on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, to the synagogue in order to not only rest, but also to worship God to think about and muse and ponder the works of God, to consider who God is, both as creator and as redeemer. It says in Exodus 20, that in, the, in that version of the Ten Commandments, that the purpose of observing the Sabbath is to acknowledge God as creator. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have an additional reason given. In Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are repeated, it says that you shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. So there, they were supposed to also, on the Sabbath, remember their redemption. So God as Creator and God as Redeemer, those were the twofold purposes of worshiping God on the Sabbath. Jesus knew that, and Jesus practiced it. When the Scriptures were read, and that's a good thing, even though many evils were happening in their day, at the very least, because they were so fixed on Moses telling them what to do, they had learned their lesson, at least a few of them did, that they dared not not read the law of Moses on the Sabbath and other days when they were supposed to, as Moses instituted. So they're doing that, which is good, because when the scriptures are read and somebody explains, at least some, in some measure, people can know what God's Word says and what God's Word means, so that they might know God in faith. This doesn't happen everywhere, though. Jesus was able to do this, but throughout the ages, sometimes Christian churches, namesake, nominal Christian churches, Christendom prohibits the reading of God's Word. They prohibit the reading of God's Word in public, and they prohibit the reading of God's Word in private. Mm -hmm. And 
it also happens today. In some places around the world, it happens today. In the United States, it, it doesn't happen in so, such an overt manner. It happens in a kind of um, a sleight of hand manner. The preacher will say, listen, you should not insist that I always preach the Bible. You don't need me to always preach the Bible. There are other things besides the Bible that I can talk about in the pulpit. So don't always expect me to preach the Bible and don't go and leave my church and go to another church because that other church you say is teaching the Bible. Don't do that. There's no need because there are other benefits of coming to this church. So come because the Bible isn't and shouldn't be your only or main reason for coming to the church. There are pe preachers who say those things. Preachers of big churches and pe preachers of small churches. Preachers of all kinds, they say those kinds of things. It happens every day. Every day. But that's not what Jesus believed. That's not what he did. He regularly went for the purpose of reading and explaining the Word of God. That was his purpose. And that should be our purpose as well. Our purpose should be to gather for the Word of God, the worship of God, and like activities. For example, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. 2.42 and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This was their custom. They were continually devoting themselves to these things. In fact, not only in the apostolic era, but also in our era are we supposed to do this. Hebrews 10, 23. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the, con uh, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. These passages make it very clear that we are to meet for this purpose of hearing the word of exhortation, which the epistle of Hebrews is called in chapter 13. It's a word of exhortation so that we hear what God says and we thereby encourage one another and prod one another to do love and good deeds. We stimulate one another this way. And this is the way also to hold fast our confession without wavering. Without wavering. This is the way to do it. By immersing ourselves in the Word of God regularly. Now, it says here, in verse 17, Luke 4, 17. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Now, as I said before, even though Jesus was not a, a priest or a Levite, it was permitted for the common Jewish man to, in turn, when his turn came and when, when he requested it and it was granted to him by the officials in the synagogue, he could make a motion and, and, and signal that he wanted to read and, and interpret, and they would allow him to do it if they deemed him worthy to do so. So they would do so. This is, another example of this is in Acts 13. Paul went from place to place, and he went to, to the synagogue, and it says, uh, Acts 13, 14, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after, reading, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, and so forth. Then he explains the gospel from various texts of the Old Testament and how they were fulfilled in Christ. This is the kind of custom that Jesus is practicing here, which was common uh, in the first century Jew, uh, Jewish synagogue setting. So he's doing this. He signals, the attendant gives him the book of Isaiah. He finds his place. Notice it says in verse 17, he opened the book and literally he opened the roll or the scroll because th the books were not bound as our books are bound today. They were rolled up either papyrus rolls or parchment rolls and Isaiah, he opened it up and he found the specific place that he wanted to read. Most likely he did it that way because it says he found the uh, place. It wasn't opened and then given to him. He opened it and found it himself, the place that he wanted to read. And what was it? Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He's quoting Isaiah 61, 1. He'll quote verses 1 to 2a. He will not quote all of verse 2. 1 to 2a, the first part of verse 2. And what does Isaiah predict? And this passage is a passage that several Jewish commentators in the past, and even today, they will say that Isaiah 61 is a reference to Messiah. It's a reference to Messiah or Christ, which word means anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. And this is why he's called anointed one, because it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. When the Holy Spirit came upon Christ, he anointed Christ, prepared Christ, installed Christ, uh, endowed Christ with gifts and power to carry out his ministry. This is what he's talking about, to be our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The Spirit of the Lord. So he's, by this, showing that he is not a self-proclaimed prophet. He's not a self-proclaimed a fanatic of any sort, nothing like that. Isaiah predicted that this would happen. The Jews knew Isaiah was predicting this. But Jesus now is saying, I, Jesus of Nazareth, am the fulfillment of this. Not any other person who claims to be Christ. I am. That's why he's doing this, because it's time to do it. And he's anointed, it says in verse 18, to preach the gospel to the poor. He's anointed to preach the gospel. This is the fundamental purpose of his ministry and of all true ministries of prophets, apostles, and pastors. They are, are supposed to be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Titus 1.9 All pastors are supposed to preach the gospel. They have nothing else to preach. They're not going to preach science. They're not supposed to preach psychology and sports and theater and hobbies and anything else. They're not to be comedians and clowns. Nothing like that. They're supposed to preach the gospel. Explain the gospel. The Bible itself is the gospel explained in 10,000 ways. From Genesis to Revelation. There are many ways to say it. You could say the gospel in a word or you can say it in, in many words. The gospel is explained in the Bible in different ways, and it's the duty of the pastor, the preacher, to explain this gospel. Wherever he finds himself in the Bible, whatever that part of the Bible says about the gospel, that's what he's supposed to explain. So that believers are built up in it, and unbelievers hear it, and are saved by it. That's the purpose. This is Jesus' purpose, and he models that for us. He says here, to the poor. To the poor does not mean to the physically poor. It does not mean to the economically poor. It does not mean that. We can see clearly in this context that it does not mean it. And the same with the terms captives, the blind, the downtrodden in verse 18. All of these are figures of speech to, to describe spiritually downtrodden people, spiritually captive people, captive to Satan and sin and death, all of the spiritually blind people, this is what it is meant here. How do we know so in context? Well, if we read in verses 25 to 27, we see Jesus makes a distinction between the widows of Israel and the widows of foreign lands. Widows are, by definition, poor people. They're poor people because they don't have husband. Or, and they don't have any kind of means, regular means of income, because that's typically what happens. It is the husband and father, the man of the house, who provides for the rest of the family. And when he's gone, he's out of the way, then she's left alone, and immediately poverty is, is, uh, uh, confronts her. And this is natural, and this is what was happening in Israel. And what is it that Jesus says in verse 25? Elijah didn't go, any, go to any of the widows in Israel. He went to a widow in Sidon, in the land of Sidon, in the land of Tyre and Sidon, outside of the land of Israel, in order to preach. And there he helped a foreign widow because she had faith. None of the wicked widows of Israel had faith, so Elijah didn't help them. The other example is verse 27. Now, this man, Naaman, was a, a, a wealthy man because he was the captain of the army of the king of, of Syria or um, 
Aram, A-R-A-M. He was there. In that sense, he had wealth, but he did not have health. He was a leper, and Jesus came to, or Elisha came and helped him, but he didn't help all of the other lepers in Israel. In fact, there was one man of Israel, Gehazi, his own personal attendant, Elisha's personal attendant, Gehazi, who was a Jew or a Hebrew, an Israelite, and because of his sin, the leprosy of Naaman was inflicted upon him because he did not have faith. Naaman had faith, but Gehazi did not have faith. So Jesus clearly, in verse 18, he's not saying God has special favor upon poor people. He's not economically poor people. It, the, the Bible does not teach that anywhere. He does not have special favor on them. He wants economically poor and economically rich people both to repent of sins and both to believe in the gospel. He wants that to be the case. The perfect example of this is, is in James chapter 2, 14 to 26. Two models of faith and works were Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was a man. He's the father of the Hebrew nation. And he was a wealthy man. He was a wealthy Hebrew man. And was he saved because of his wealth? No, he was saved in spite of his wealth because he had true faith in the gospel. And then the same with Rahab. Who was Rahab? She was a harlot or a prostitute. And she was a Canaanite and she was a woman. She had all those things against her. But what happened? Because of her faith, God saved her. She had faith in the gospel. So her, uh, her ignoble uh, and, and bad, uh, evil background... <clears throat> God forgave that. She was a woman and that didn't matter either. And she was a Canaanite and that didn't matter either. It doesn't matter. What matters is faith. If you have true faith demonstrated in works. And I say this because especially these days, not only in the United States but all around the world, we have a false gospel that's being proclaimed in many, many denominations, many, many churches, and in seminaries and Christian universities. It's called liberation theology. Liberation theology. Liberation theology is just a fancy way of saying it's Christian Marxism or Marxist Christians. Karl Marx, that, that, uh, that grotesque man of the 1800s, mid-1800s, who hated God and hated Christianity, hated anything to do with religion, he wanted to devise a system to be able to control people and deal with people apart from God, apart from re religious faith, uh, apart from communities, apart from parents even. All of that, he wanted to strip children away from all of that. And he, he promoted what we call public schools, which is tax-funded schools. He promoted that and all kinds of other things in order to bring misery to people. In the name of uplifting them economically, he makes everybody equally poor except the aristocracy, except the ruling class. That, that was Karl Marx. In the name of uplifting you. And then what did he do? He and, he and his disciples devised ways, and this is all documented. He de they devised ways through the Russians, through the Germans, through the Chinese, various pe people who secretly to infiltrate the United States and other countries, especially in their educational system, but al also in all kinds of other areas, in their entertainment industries, in their media, uh, news media, and other sources and, and other venues in order to promote this. And this has infiltrated even Christianity. In fact, in the mid-1900s, in the mid-1900s, the U.S. Um, Congress did research on this, and they published a document that says that in the early 1900s, communism had infiltrated Christian seminaries, Christian universities, and they were here in the United States masquerading as Christianity when it was actually communism or socialism, liberalism, however you want to call it. That's what was going on. And it's still going on today. Yep. And there are current false teachers who are teaching this. 
And the biggest false teacher who teaches this these days is Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a part of the PCA denomination, Presbyterian Church in America. That denomination used to be conservative, but much of it is not anymore because of the evil influence of Tim Keller, who teaches Marxism. He was trained in Marxism, and he teaches Marxism, and he says this is the gospel. It's all false. Don't believe it. Don't go there. Christ did not come for that, and it is contrary to a careful interpretation of the Bible. Now, verse 19. Luke 4, 19. He also says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The favorable year of the Lord. What is this favorable year of the Lord? Well, it is the announcement of His coming in order to fulfill all of the, the purposes of God for our salvation. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. The favorable year of the Lord is the fullness of times when Christ comes. It says, Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When God purposed in due time, Christ came into the world, and this is what He's announcing. He's saying, I am announcing this now, and I am accomplishing it now. But He did not read the last part of Isaiah 66, verse 2, which says, and also to declare the year of God's vengeance. He did not say anything negative. Notice, he did not say anything negative in his interpretation, his quotation and his interpretation. He only said positive things. He only spoke positive words. This is what I've come to do. In verse 20, and he closed the book, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, which was the custom to sit down and then to start speaking more, especially if people are interested. So, verse 20 says, And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. They're dazzled. They're dazzled. They're looking at him and they're saying, Is this Messiah? Is this the Christ? Is this? They are amazed and, and they are fixed with their eyes upon Him. But we will see that these are only physical eyes. Their spiritual eyes are not. Because they are fixated on physical and material things, they don't have spiritual eyes. We'll see this in a moment. So verse 21, And He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's fulfilled because it was meant to be fulfilled at the early part of Jesus' ministry and then fulfilled when He died on the cross and rose from the dead in that sense too. So He's saying today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. They were witnesses. They were eyewitnesses of Christ. Eyewitnesses of Christ. This is similar to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 1-23, when Jesus announced the parable of the sower, seed, and soils. Remember what Jesus did? He announced the parable to the multitudes, but then He took His own disciples aside and gave them the interpretation. And He said that they get it in parables, but because it's not meant for them to understand it, it's meant for you to understand it. They see it, they see it physically, but they don't see it spiritually. You see it spiritually and physically. That's what Jesus said. And this is what He's declaring here. You know it's fulfilled right before your very eyes. Well, what do they do? And all were speaking well of Him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from His lips. Immediate, the immediate reaction is they speak well of Him. They are amazed at His gracious words from His lips. They're listening to the way He says it. They're listening to every nice and, and pleasant word that he speaks. Remember, remember, he did not say anything negative. He has not said anything negative this far in the narrative. He's only saying positive and gracious words. So they are correct in that sense. But what happens? 
Because they are only physically minded, earthly people, fleshly people, it says, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? You see, initially, just like they did with Ezekiel, initially, oh, he's got a beautiful voice. He, he ha knows how to play well on the instrument. Oh, they heard, heard that from Ezekiel. But then the truth set in, and then they start to reflect. Now, wait a minute. We know who this Jesus is. We know, we know his pedigree. His father is Joseph. His father is Joseph. Now, when they say, is this not Joseph's son? It, it's implied here in Luke, in Luke 4.22, that that was a negative question. It's implied that it's negative. It's more explicit that it was negative in Mark. In Mark chapter 6. Mark 6, verse 1. And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except he laid hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. They wonder at his words and he wonders at their unbelief belief. So when they say, is this not Joseph's son? They, what are they doing? Who is Joseph? He's an insignificant man. He, he's just a, a carpenter, or perhaps even the original word might mean mason or something, but he does just common labor kinds of tasks. He's no politician. He's no king. He's no royal official. He, he's not a wealthy man, a rich man, nothing like that. And he's not even educated. He's not formally educated, according to John seven fourteen to 16. He has no formal education. So, what to do with him? Should we believe in him or not? This is the common problem. Everybody has this problem. Why should I listen to so-and-so? The, the, the issue of authority comes up all the time. Why should I listen to so-and-so? He doesn't... He doesn't have a good education. He's not wealthy. Well, nobody else likes him. Why should I listen to him? Uh, well, the only thing he does is he teaches the Bible, but what, what, what else is there? What, what, isn't there supposed to be something more? Isn't church supposed to be something more than that? Well, where, are all the, all, where are all the other activities? This is what goes on in the minds of people. So they did that with, jo uh, with Jesus, is this not Joseph's son? So, Jesus knew, and he brings out even more clearly, he knew that they were saying this with animosity. Okay? He knew that. That's why he says in verse 23, And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. That is... The Jews had a proverb that Jesus quotes, and Jesus isn't the only one who uses this kind of phrase, physician, heal yourself, because the rabbis used to do this too. So Jesus is saying to them, no doubt you're going to say this to me, physician, heal yourself. That is, you have the means to help the people in your own locality, so why don't you do that? Heal, heal, heal yourself, heal the people in your family, heal your neighbors. Why don't you do that? Uh, we heard that you went over there. You went, across, you went across the boundary line. You went to that other village. You went to that other city. You went across the river, and you went and helped those people. Why don't you help the people around here? So what did they say? We heard what you did at Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. We know you went over there, and you performed miracles. We heard that you did that. Perform a miracle here. Do something right here in front of us, and then we'll accept you. That's what they're saying. Do it here, and then we'll believe. That's what they're saying. 
But what happens? This is the kind of reaction Jesus has to people like that. In Matthew 13, Matthew 13, it says that they, they're asking him, who is this? Isn't it the carpenter's son? His mother is Mary, isn't it? So forth. And then it says in verse 57, Matthew 13, 57, but they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Do you see that? Because of their unbelief, he did not do many miracles. The people throughout all ages, they say, if you just say it right, I'll believe. If you are winsome and charming enough, I'll, I'll believe. If you speak it eloquently enough, sophisticatedly enough, intelligently enough, use the vocabulary that I want, use the academic vocabulary, and then I'll believe the gospel. People say that. Or they'll say, well, if, if you, it's hard to look at you, you know. I just wish you were more handsome and tall. It's hard to look at you. It's easier for me to go look at this other person and to follow him. He's admirable. He's tall and handsome. You know, this is what happened with Saul, right? The people liked him because he was tall and handsome. They didn't look at his character. It's not a sin to be tall and handsome, but that's all they fixed their eyes on. They didn't fix their eyes on righteousness. So this is what they do. Or they'll say, if you get a degree, then we'll listen to you. Or, in the case of Jesus, perform a miracle. Hey, does your church pray for miracles and healings and, and uh, gifts of prophecy and tongues and this and that? Does your church do that? Do, okay, does your church heal handicapped people and ra raise people from the dead? If your church does that, then I'll come to your church. If your church doesn't do that, the Holy Spirit is not there. That's what they say. They want miracles. But what does Jesus say? No. He turns away. It does not matter how many miracles. Who's going to do better miracles than Jesus? Who's going to speak the Word of God better than Jesus? Nobody. And they still crucified Him. And we'll see in this passage they attempt to kill Him. So what makes us think that that's what we need to do in order to draw a crowd or in order to get people to believe the Gospel? No way. Absolutely not. So, Jesus says, verse 24, And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Indeed, it was the Jews of the Old Testament who murdered the prophets. Was it not? They were the ones who chased them away. Now, Elijah would not have gone, for one reason, he would not have gone to Sidon, if Ahab was not chasing him, Ahab, Jezebel, he didn't have to go from place to place unless the wicked king and queen were chasing him, trying to put him to death. And this is what he's saying here. A prophet does not get well received among his own people. It doesn't happen that way. And we know that to be the case with Jesus. John chapter 1. And he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. We shouldn't be surprised. And this also will happen to us. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Luke 10, 16. The one who listens to you, listens to me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. If People listen to us, they listen to Christ, and they listen to God the Father. If they reject us, they reject Christ, and they reject God the Father, assuming that we are preaching the gospel. And then, what happens? He illustrates. He illustrates verse 25. By the way, you, you'll notice, Jesus could have stopped here. He could have stopped here, but He is letting them have it. He's letting them have it by illustration. He doesn't back off and say, okay, I, I, I pricked your conscience enough, now I'm going to walk away. He doesn't do that. He drives it home and makes them miserable in their conscience. 
makes them miserable in their conscience with these two illustrations. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Indeed, in the time of Elijah, 1 Kings 17, the, most of the chapter is, taking, is taken up with this incident of this widow of the land of Sidon. 1 Kings 17. There, Elijah was not, not in Israel because he was praying for a curse on Israel. The narrative starts in chapter 16. From chapter 16, 17, uh, through 2 Kings chapter 1. From 1 Kings 16 to 2 Kings 1. Again and again and again, Elijah has an oracle of judgment. He's illustrating again and again and preaching again and again to the kings, the false prophets, to the people, to everybody. Judgment, 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 judgment. As far as I read, he does not have a single redemptive oracle. He does not have a single redemptive prophecy. He does not have a single redemptive statement. Meaning, he, he does not make sure the people understand, remember, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't try to make sure of any of that. Elijah is pictured as a man who had the judgment of God before him and constantly was preaching that, and the people hated him. They hated him, especially Ahab and Jezebel. So he prayed. They had so much sin. Elijah prayed. Remember, according to uh, James chapter 5, James 5, 17 and 18, Elijah was the one who prayed for this famine to occur. Elijah was the one who prayed that there would be no rain for three and a half years. Elijah prayed for this judgment to happen to his own flesh and blood, his own people. Elijah prayed this. He did not help them because they would not repent and believe the gospel. So he went to the land of Sidon to a widow and helped her because she believed. 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Second Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. That's where Elisha heals Naaman, but he does not heal the other lepers in Israel, and he in fact inflicts Gehazi, his own personal attendant or servant, with leprosy because Gehazi demonstrated greed. He loved money above the master. He loved money and therefore he was inflicted with leprosy until the day of his death. This is the kind of thing that Elisha did. He helped the foreigner, Naaman the Syrian, or your Bible may say Aramean. The Syrian or the Aramean, he helped him. But he would not help anybody in Israel. Why? Because the people of Israel lacked faith. But Naaman, Naaman demonstrated faith. At first he was hesitant, but then he went and dipped himself in, in the Jordan seven times. Then he went. At first he hesitated, he lacked faith, but then he demonstrated faith, and he was healed. So, what is their reaction? Verse 28, and all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They all were filled with rage. They weren't filled with remorse and repentance. They didn't say, you are exactly right. I know you said you said it in truth, and I know you said it in truth. I know exactly what the scripture says. Did Jesus tell them something new? No. He told them what exactly is in their own scriptures. They all claim to believe the Bible. They all claim to believe in Elijah and Elisha and all the other prophets. They all claim that. They all read that from time to time. They know about those incidents. It wasn't anything new. He did not invent or misinterpret anything. But they, what, where did they put the focus? They didn't put the focus on what the Word of God says so that they repent and believe the gospel. They put their focus on what that man said. They put their focus on what that man said, and they are enraged. 
They hate him for telling the truth. Verse 29, And they rose up and cast them out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Look at this. On the Sabbath day, they're not supposed to do any of this kind of punishment on the Sabbath day or execution, but they're breaking the Sabbath here. They're breaking the Sabbath in order to attempt the, the, the death of Christ. They're trying to kill him. They want to murder him. He has done nothing that deserves death. He hasn't murdered somebody. He hasn't kidnapped somebody. He hasn't done anything like that. And the law would say if they have done that, then they deserve the death penalty through investigation and the courts decide, then he should be put to death. But in this case, he didn't do anything like that. All he did was read the scriptures and recount the scripture to, to them and apply the scriptures to the current situation. That's all he did. He didn't embezzle money either. He didn't do anything. That's all he did. And they want to put him to death. This is the same lot that we will face. The same lot that we will face. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5. Many people love to identify and to read and refer to the Sermon on the Mount. But there are some very, very difficult verses in the Sermon on the Mount that many people actually look over. They look over, they overlook them because they don't want to think about them. For example, Matthew 5, verse 10. This is from the lips of Jesus. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the way it will happen to us. 2 Timothy 3.12 And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But God has His own time when, when persecution strikes and even when death strikes. Notice verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went his way. He was able to escape. And implicitly, this was happening by the purposes of God because when he, it was time for him to die, he did die. He, he was captured, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, put on trial, and then put to death on the cross. So in due time, it happened, but not at this time because God has a time for everything. Notice, this is a common expression in the book of John. My hour has not yet come. Jesus says several times in the book of John, my hour has not yet come. And one example is John 8.20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. In due time, it would be time for Christ to be arrested and to die on the cross, but not now. And this illustrates the fact that in due time, we will be persecuted and we may even be put to death. But when that happens, it will happen by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It will happen whenever God wants it to happen. We know this was the case with the Apostle Paul too. He lists in 2 Corinthians many times that he was persecuted, many times that he was near death. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he knows he's about to die, but he's not worried. He says, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4, 18. In due time, our persecutions will come, but no worries. We, we trust God and God will bring about His will in our life whenever that happens. But our, our soul is in the hand of God and He'll take us through the waters, He'll take us through the fire and nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's be like Christ and let's ask God to make us bold and courageous no matter what the consequences. He who has ears to hear let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for us to learn these lessons. Learn that 
we must speak the truth. And whether it is the positive words of God or even the negative words of God, whatever we speak, we pray that we will courageously do so and that we will take whatever consequences may come. May we not shrink back away in shame. May we not be cowards and thereby be thrown into the lake of fire. We know, Lord, that your word says in Second Timothy 1, 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. You have not given us timidity, so make us courageous to speak the gospel wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.